Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is a podcast where my guest tells me the five things from their life, any time in their life, that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish and would like to keep safe, but they also pick one thing that they rather regret, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode is the comedian and writer George Lewis. George is from Stockport, but we won't hold that against him, and has appeared on the stand-up sketch show on ITV, hosted Top Gear Extra Gear on BBC Two and Worldwide, and was the winner of Celebrity Mastermind with the highly erudite specialist subject of Oasis. He's a very successful stand-up comedian, but he's also written for 8 Out of 10 Cats, Have I Got News For You, Hypothetical on Dave, and he has a weekly football column in The Times. He's been tour support for Ramesh Ranganathan, Tom Allen, Russell Kane and Josh Widdicombe. But don't forget, they were once tour supports themselves. Of course, in his early career, he followed the footsteps of Sarah Millican and Jack Whitehall to win the Amused Moose National New Comic Award. He's also won several other competitions and was selected to perform as part of the prestigious Pleasance Reserve. And he was a BBC New Comedy Award finalist. Recently, George has written a best-selling book, published by Monoray, and available as a book on Kindle or in audiobook. It's called, rather usefully as it tells you exactly what it's about, Don't Panic, All the Stuff the Expectant Dad Needs to Know, with contributions from Andy Parsons, Ellis James, Josh Widdicombe, Kerry Godleman, Rich Hall, Ramesh Ranganathan again, and Russell Kane, and many, many more, which I highly recommend. Although for me, it was a bit like reading an ancient history book, as it's all so long ago. As a presenter on Top Gear Extra Gear, George has interviewed such stars as Warwick Davis, Gordon Ramsay, Gillian Anderson and Jim Broadbent. But now the tables are turned and I get to ask him some questions, mostly about the five things he put in a time capsule. Mostly. Have fun. Hey, George. Hey, Michael. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. I've just... uh just hooked up these wireless headphones for the first time but i think we're, we're good. Uh, is it working yeah. yeah fantastic see now i can't decide look i've just discovered while sitting here that there's a button here <laughs> that's and what I've, you do isn't it when you're in this situation you just, you you're just fiddling up. you fiddle don't you yeah and i've discovered a button and i can't decide whether having it done up makes me look weird or having it open and you get to a certain age, George. The last thing you want to do is show anybody your neck. You know what I mean? Well, I, I think I think it's two different things. I think I'd have it done up. I think that's got its own style. But yeah. open makes it look like you are living a good life. Magnum PI. Exactly. Yeah. 
I like open. That puts me in the... the okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you open then for this interview. <laughs> so um, what a gorgeous day to ask you to sit indoors. And Well, yeah. I'm, a, I'm actually in Manchester, though, so it's not as nice probably as oh, right. it's, it's never as nice. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's bright, but it's, it's great at the same time. Uh, okay, right. Well, here, down in the south... We bought it, you see. We bought the sunshine. That's what it is. I knew that was the reason, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's Respect. typical. Bloody typical. <laughs> All the tourists down here, they went, well, we get the sunshine, <laughs> don't we? I think it's only reasonable. It's only fair, isn't it? It's only fair. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I knew it. Bastards. Anyway, um, yes, I've spent my entire life living right in Tory heartland, and I can't tell you how much yeah. I'm absolutely not a Tory. How does that feel? Because we... Uh, it's weird, isn't it? Because often you think, oh, this is a beautiful place. This must be a lovely place to live. But you, mm. you go to these places and that's usually what you what you find there. It is. We've moved and we're not in, there aren't really many Tory areas in Greater Manchester, but it's it might be the most that way in the, in the area. Um, and I think nothing really changes, but you sort of look at people in a slightly different way, don't you? I find that it's not worth me bringing up things political. Yeah. Or there are ways of doing it where you sort of go, I ah, see, you know, you're agreeing with me on that, aren't you? You know, that it's, you know, we want as good a health service as we possibly can. I'm happy to put more money into the health service, aren't you? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes, of course. You know, yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah, go on then. So in other words, when I say to you, we're going to put 5p in the pound on <laughs> yeah, tax yeah. in order to make sure we have a proper health service and decent education, you're yeah. going to be up in arms, aren't you? <laughs> I know. It's, it's mad that, isn't it? I remember... It was weird. When I was young, I just never knew anyone who was, was a Tory. There must have been, but they wouldn't say. And then it was only when I moved to, to London um, that people spoke about it quite freely. And I was like, what? <laughs> well, obviously there were, because we had, a, we had a Tory government, you know. Some yeah. people would have it, but I just, it was so bizarre to me. But then again, I've, I've met people since who um, have come from places where no one would admit if they were a Labour. Yeah, yeah, quite. Although, strangely, you can be surprised by it. I mean, I live in Tunbridge Wells, yeah. and in fact, we voted Remain. Yes. Who knew? Who knew? Well, that's it. It's not as, nothing's as clear as we, we once thought. No. no, don't judge a book by its covers. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so um, we're going to talk about five things that you want to put in a time capsule, four things that you love and one thing you want to bury and forget. Uh, how's it been thinking about it? Yes. Well, it's. I absolutely love thinking about stuff like this, but I, do, I just get lost in, you know, trying to go through every single memory that I've got in my <laughs> entire life and I'll disappear along these these tangents and then I'll I'll change my mind on things. But, they, uh, yeah, I think I've settled, I think I've settled on ones that, that I'd be... I'd be happy to take. And I, I was quite sure about the one that I was getting rid of. So we'll right, okay. Well, you can do it in any order you like. You don't have to necessarily leave that to last. You can get it out of the way if you want to. Yeah, we'll, we'll see how we go. We'll see. Maybe it'll spring up halfway through. Yeah. You'll suddenly say, I can't wait any longer. I've got to get rid of it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've got to get rid of it right now. <laughs> All right, so what's the first thing? It's So uh, you've got kids of you, Michael. I have, yeah, and grandchildren. Yeah. Oh, well, well, you, you so. So for me, it's the tea and toast um, that I had once our first child had been born and we were taken into the recovery and the midwife made my wife and me some tea and toast. And it was the best taste that I've, uh, I've ever experienced. And it was, <laughs> looking back, it was horrible. I mean, it was sort of stale white bread with margarine on it and mm. it was a, a sugary tea that, uh, you know, really weak. But at that moment, it was just the best taste in my life because you'd been through this thing this because I don't think anyone really prepares you for what a birth is going to be like until you go through it and it's so much more intense than I ever imagined it would be mm. and obviously you can never you can never mention this as the dad because <laughs> because whatever you've been through is you know it's nothing you, you can't ever mention no. it but it's and I found it to be a not a particularly nice experience. I thought it was just worry. It was just constant worry for hours and hours on end. You've got adrenaline carrying you through, but you always felt, I always felt like it was life and death constantly. And I mean, looking back, and now I've done research because I wrote a book about uh, being a dad, but now I've done research, I've realised that's pretty much how, how it is for everyone. And it's not yeah. really life and death because it's so rare that things go seriously wrong. But mm. 
at the time, you just, I just couldn't believe how how awful it was and how much I was worried about my wife and how much I was worried about this this kid that I had not met yet. And no. when you finally get to the end of it, you finally feel that like everything is okay and you realise you've not eaten for hours and hours and hours and then they bring <laughs> in this disgusting tea and toast <laughs> and you start eating it. It was just, oh, it was just the... I, I, my mouth's watering thinking about it now because it was uh, it was everything. It was just like it it stood for everything being okay. You know? mm. It felt like the first day of a completely new thing. And I always think now. I always think about uh, when I'm when I'm eating toaster. Now I imagine that, and I I always do this thing actually, which my wife thinks she thinks I'm mental for doing this, but <laughs> <laughs> I basically I like I recontextualize everything really. So for instance. If you've ever been locked out of your house, you'll you'll know the feeling of you're locked out. And I, I remember once I was locked out and I, I'd come in at like one in the morning and I was locked out all night long and, and <laughs> I, was just, I was just waiting on the streets and it was it was cold and wet and all I could think about was how I wanted to be in my own bed and it'd be warm. And that was like I thought I want nothing else in life other than to be in that bed warm. Mm. So sometimes now when I'm lying in my warm bed and I might be a little bit board or something like that i'll close my eyes i'll imagine for a second that i'm locked out of the house and how much i'd pray to be in this bed and then suddenly <laughs> go hey you are you're in the bed. hey life's <laughs> always a bonus yeah and it feels amazing and i do it with everything and my wife's like what are you doing lying in bed imagining <laughs> that you're, you, you're locked out in the, in the rain but i do it with everything so I, i'll often do it with tea and toast if it's not a particularly nice cup of tea or it's not a particularly nice slice of toast i'll i'll close my eyes, imagine that I've just been through the hell. <laughs> hours and hours and hours yeah. of powerlessness. That's what yeah. I remember from it most. Yeah. It's that feeling of this is the person you love most in the world that's going through this awful thing and there's nothing you can do. Absolutely. That's exactly right. It's powerlessness because you feel like you really should be doing something as well. I remember feeling like, at points when the doctors were like doing something and I've seen my wife in pain and I'm thinking I should act I should do something you know you should yeah. tackle the midwife get her off her or something or <laughs> just something but you can't do anything and obviously and no one expects you to do anything other than other than be there but it's it's something that um I don't think you, you can be prepared for really. no and despite the fact that it's now absolutely you know de rigueur for dads to be in there <laughs> you can tell from that team of people particularly if some of them are, are you know are older it's a bloody pain having the dad in there. You know, you're, you're of no use at all. You don't help. You just get in the way. And they say things like, you know, are you going to be all right? You're not going to fall over. You're not going to faint or anything. Are you, are you okay? I know. I know. That's the thing. It's another, no other area of the hospital is someone in there watching in the same way that, that, that we are. And it's just someone else for them to worry about, isn't it? It's someone else getting in the way. I mean, I know, I've spoken to plenty of people about this and the dads will often, you know, they'll make a mistake. They'll, I know a couple of people who, who fell asleep during it. I think, what? <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> so, so yeah, we're just getting in the way, and it just reminds you. And yeah, I think you carry on getting reminded throughout your your fathering career mm. just how little you have to offer. <laughs> <laughs> you started with nothing, and you've gone nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I certainly have. For years and years, I've had that, you know, you're still useless. Yeah. You realise you're pretending, really, aren't you? You're just getting by. I, I remember the first stages of being a dad. You try and do the things that you've seen other people do, and you think that's how you do it. Hmm. And then as you're doing them, and as you may be reading all the stuff about what you're meant to do, you're realising that's not how you're meant to do it. And all of the people that you've seen were getting it really wrong. <laughs> yes. And then you start thinking about all the mistakes that were made with you when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The big mistake is if you start doing what your parents did. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Because they were just floundering in the same way that, that we are with, with a lot less uh, information around. It's interesting, you. isn't it, that that is the one area of life that is really crucial, the ability to bring up and look after a child properly. And yeah. nobody's taught it. Yeah. As if it's a thing you can't learn, where I think you can learn certain skills or you can certainly be warned, forewarned of things you might need to do. I completely agree with you. That's what I've, I've thought this ever since. I've thought it's absolutely mad because there are loads of things that I feel like I could, I could tell people and it would make it better. A lot of the things that I was reading beforehand, they sort of prepare you for the practical bits of the first few weeks and how to change an happy and stuff. But all of the things that you've 
you feel and all of the the guilt and the boredom and the, <laughs> the all of that stuff which you don't expect but also the, the worry but also all the amazing bits i didn't i didn't really know about any of it until i went through it and i think you could teach people about that i reckon well you could just let them know that this might happen yeah. you might feel this way you know you are scared and people do get scared in those situations yeah. and it is frightening but i had no idea i honestly thought my wife gave birth to twins and that the second one was absolutely disgusting and it was the afterbirth. <laughs> and uh, I assume you raised this afterbirth as a... <laughs> what the hell is that? Oh, my God. It's the afterbirth, yeah. sir. What, what, what's the afterbirth? I think I did say, yeah. what's the afterbirth? Nobody had told me. Why would they? Why would they tell a, a young man about that? <laughs> God. Yeah, because that's like they, they basically, yeah, they have to, they have to give birth again, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. The birth, Just is... after they've gone through this awful thing, they say, "Okay, right now we need to get this next thing out." Yeah, and, and I don't. Yeah. I think that if you spoke to almost any teenager, and or you spoke to a young man who was not married and hadn't had mm-hmm. children, and you said, "Talk us through birth," what happens? They wouldn't have <laughs> the faintest idea. No. I mean, I struggle to do it accurately now, I think. There are still things that I've not quite got my head around. But, I mean, I understand that it's an individual experience for people, that each one is different. Some are fantastically straightforward and easy, and people think, well, this is great, you know. And others go on for days and days and, you know, yeah. and are really frightening and might end in, you know, C-sections and that sort of stuff. But um, yeah. there are moments with the birth of my own children that I remember vividly and had no warning of at all. I turned up at the hospital to find my wife. They said, she's having a bath. Do you want to go in and see her? But she's, the contractions have started. And I said, oh, okay. So <clears throat> I went into this bathroom and my wife was in the bath. And then suddenly she went, oh! And she lay back and I could see the baby. What? Her contractions were so powerful that her stomach, it was like cling film, wrapped oh, wow. around the shape of this oh, wow. I know. And I went, oh, my God. <laughs> I had not really thought that much about there being this being inside her. I just thought she's pregnant. I hadn't really thought a lot about the baby. Yeah. And suddenly I could see it. I could see its face. Oh my it was God. really weird. Well, it's, yeah, it, it, you sort of feel like, you know, we're living in the 2020s now. There, there should be a better way. <laughs> there should be a more modern way of doing this. <laughs> <laughs> that, that that thing that you the way that you reacted as well i found myself a lot of the times and i feel like a lot of the time just during being a dad as well the trick is not to let your face do what is going on in your head <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm going ah what the hell is going on yeah. <laughs> and you, you've just got to go oh, you know, yeah when you start imagining what things must be like for them that a lot of the things they're doing is happening for the first time ever yeah. so if they drop a banana on the floor and, and they you know, they look like the whole world has fallen apart. <laughs> we'll be thinking, oh, don't be silly, it's a banana. But to them, yeah. this has never happened before and they've got no context, you know. Nothing bad really has ever happened to them. So they've got this thing that they means everything to them and they've dropped it on the floor. It is the end of the world, you know. Yeah, and in a way that's what you're there for. You are there for that moment when they get yeah. handed the ice cream cone and you say, keep it upright or make sure yeah. you push it on harder. Because you remember the terrible yeah. feeling of an ice cream falling off an ice cream cone. Oh, God, yeah, yeah, you do. So tell me about your book. What inspired you to actually write the book then? Oh, well, it, it was going through that. So it was going through all those new things and not feeling like I'd been told about them. I felt like the only time that I did get the proper advice was just when you were chatting to a mate who'd already been through it mm-hmm. and they'd said, oh, yeah, that this bit can be a bit worrying or um, this bit's a bit scary, this bit's hilarious, don't worry about that bit, do worry about that bit. Yeah, um, and if you get the chance, try the gas and air. <laughs> yes, oh, that's always, that's usually the first thing, actually. That, that <laughs> uh, and of course you do, and it's, yeah, it's it's it's, it's good. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was that, it was feeling like I'd not been prepared, but also it was during lockdown. So I think we'd had, we'd had both of our kids and then went into the first lockdown. So suddenly all stand-up gigs have gone away. Yeah. And I, uh, for a while I thought it was okay because I've still got writing work because I write about football and then all football went away. So 
then suddenly I've got I've got nothing. Nothing. No. And I'm thinking, how am I going to provide for my my kids? You know. And then I'm thinking, well, actually, I should be looking at it a different way. How are my kids going to provide for me? Maybe uh... I can use what they're doing uh, to make something. And I'd always thought to myself that I wanted to write a book, but I've always gone, ah, oh, I've not, you know, I've not, I've not got time. I've never got time. And then I thought, well, if you don't do it now, George, then you've never got an excuse again. Yeah. So I just, yeah, I just started writing it and I loved it so much. In my head, I thought I'd, I'd do one book and then once it was finished, I'd, I'd be done with it. And I think I'd never want to do it again. Mm. But I, I absolutely loved it. I thought it was brilliant. I loved speaking to people because it's got a load of other people in a load of different comedians that I've spoke to and they've all given little sections to it. And it's great hearing the stuff that, they went through and, and the, the, the ways they've got it wrong usually mm. is the is the nice thing that you like to hear and it just yeah it was just a pleasure from start to finish to write it and it's probably been the thing that in my life that I've done that I'm most proud of I just I just so happy with it and yeah I'm just thinking about what to do for an, another book now. Mm. I think I'd write another one about being a dad <laughs> well you know I mean following your journey as it were yeah these things change and they evolve as it goes on I mean there'll come a time when you're having to try and get your children into school and yeah. and that's a really strange period in your life yeah this is coming up soon because basically they're both in they're both in nursery but one is in a preschool but we're having this another thing tell you the short version but without going into it too much but what i realized when i was writing about being a dad and i would look up uh what the, the standard things are and i'd always compare them to my kids and i'm thinking this isn't the same what's going on it's not it's not and obviously every kid's completely different and that's what you keep getting reminded but i realized that our kids were a bit different um and they're both autistic my kids right but we only we found out fairly recently but you, you find out these things gradually because they'll they'll say oh you know maybe there's a few delays and then there'll be there might be some learning disability and stuff um but we found out that they, they both are um but we've also got to a point where we just want to celebrate it like they're, they're just brilliant our kids we just absolutely love them and those things that they obviously they have more difficulties being autistic but they have some things which are are better than you know mm. than life without autism because they they experience happiness so extremely um, um <laughs> even though they, they you know so they'll go from breakdown to complete happiness and it's it's yeah it's fantastic so i mean we wouldn't even though maybe it's not something that you'd you'd wish for beforehand we wouldn't change it at all that you know they're they're brilliant it just means maybe a bit a bit more work sometimes mm. but that thing about starting school is something that has been you know, something we've been thinking about for ages. But I think because we've got this transition where they're already in the preschool and, yeah, they, they just love it. And, I mean, they, they do things in a different way to a lot of the other kids there, but, you know, they're just they're just doing it their own way and they're, they're, they're figuring it out. Yeah, but, but it can change. It can change. Yeah. My daughter's children are both autistic ah. and there we are, the same. <laughs> and uh, they've gone along fine and suddenly we've hit a, hit a wall with my my granddaughter strangely yeah. enough, who seemed to be the one that was coping best. Mm. But uh, they do say that that uh, actually girls are much better at masking. Absolutely, yeah. At pretending everything's okay. And actually inside, it's not great. And she's suddenly hit this wall and is now, she's having a really tough time. She's not going to school anymore. Yeah. She stopped going. And uh, it's really difficult. You can't get her to do things. She won't go anywhere. Right, yeah. She wants to just be in the house and with her mother. Yes. And it's very difficult. It's difficult. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. The other side of it is joyous. They have such a yeah. joy of life. They have such exuberance. It's extraordinary. Absolutely. When it comes to yeah. this. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we live now, it's just, it just feels like the best time ever because it feels like the, the view from society and stuff is just changing. And, and I feel like people understand it more, but also... I think it always used to be like my, my brother is also autistic. And I remember when even then, which isn't a long, long time ago, but even then I think the uh, general feeling was let's try to make him as normal as possible. Not, not from anyone in particular, but that was the thing that was like, let's try and get yeah, him to yeah. fit in, try and get him to fit in. Whereas now I think the view is changing to be like, let's, let's just celebrate all the, the, different things about them. Yeah, absolutely. And and schools are providing yeah. facilities and help and the sort of situation you need, you know. I mean, uh, my grandson and granddaughter, both, obviously, there are certain things that they 
they experience in a heightened way. Mm. So smells and yeah. noise and all those things. And if they're in an environment like a school, which is constantly changing and the unpredictability of it all can be very frustrating for an autistic child. Yes. So schools are learning that and are learning that if they tell a child in advance what's going to happen, mm. it really helps. There are some schools that are still behind on these things, I think. Yeah, yeah. They definitely. need to catch up. Yeah, yeah. You, you definitely have that and you have loads of, you have to fight for everything and you have to try and educate other people about it and about your kids and about the way to deal with them. But I think generally, in general, things are, yeah, the future is good. Yes. When I was young, they would have been just known as difficult children. Yeah. But I love, I love, like you say, those benefits, the concentration on something that they like. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Yeah. I know, yeah. We sometimes look at look at the things that our daughter does and she could sit for hours sort of lining up figures and making them. And she's just, you can tell that she's just so involved in it and, and mm. uh, enjoying it so much. And sometimes I'll see the looks on their faces when they're happy and I think, I don't know if I've ever been that happy. That's, you know, yeah. it's just it's just amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I think that going back to the the tea and toast, the thing after the birth is you have no idea what's ahead of you, but it's, it is all amazing. You know? <laughs> and, and obviously a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff about being a dad is, is difficult, but I think just the overall thing that you get from it is just, just fantastic. Yeah, as long as you start from a point where you know that you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's the best. In fact, yeah, that's the, that's the liberation, isn't it? As soon as you know yeah. that you, you allow yourself to get it wrong and you know that, Everyone else is getting it wrong as well. And all your mates and all the people that you'd imagine are, are doing brilliantly. They're mm. all messing it up. So yeah. it's fine. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, then. Tea and toast it is. Yes. Hospital supplied. Marvellous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In it goes as the first thing. Excellent. Brilliant, George. So, um, so what's number two? Okay. So the second thing I'm going to put in is a pair of rollerblades. So when I, when I was younger, I used to, sort of when I was like um, a teenager, I guess, I used to rollerblade like, um, it's like street skating. So, you know, like yeah. grinding on things. And, and I did that for, looking back, probably not even that long, but quite a while. And it was just, I remember it was my whole life at that point. And I just <laughs> adored it. And and then I, I stopped maybe when I went to like college or something. And I just, mm-hmm. I, I never really thought about it that, that much again. And I was listening to a podcast during lockdown, it was, and it was, um, it was Ellis, Ellis James, who's been on. Well, yeah, what a lovely man. He is, isn't yeah. he? Um, I'll tell you what, actually, just a side note about Ellis. So he, he's in my book. I asked everyone if they could do maybe between one and three contributions to the book. Uh, and, and I was so grateful because everyone just did it out there, kindness of the heart, really. Mm. Ellis, I think he sent me 13 things. <laughs> <laughs> and they were all so good. And I just thought... I feel like so guilty of how nice the man is. Um, yes, and thank you for writing my book. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> half in. But, um, uh, but yeah, so he's got a well, he's got a load of podcasts, but he's got one socially distant sports bar with Mike Bubbins and Steph Guerrero, and it's where they watch documentaries about sports and then they chat about them basically. Mm. And it started in lockdown, but it's still going now. But anyway, they were talking one episode about. I think one of them had got a pair of football boots that they'd always wanted when they were a kid and they never got them. And they just thought, well, I'm in my, what, my 40s now. I'm just going to buy them. I know that, because you know, <laughs> yeah. why not? Because I never got them and I'm just going to buy them. I'm going to go out and have a kickback. And they described this feeling of just feeling like you were 12 again. And I thought, yeah. And I, and I kind of know what that's like because I play football still and I, I still have that feeling and it's brilliant. And, but it got me thinking about rollerblade and I thought, God, I used to love that. I used to adore that. And I, and I tracked down some of the lads that I used to go with. And some of them still do it now. And some of them became pro skaters. And that, wow. they're, they're amazing. And I was watching it thinking, God, that was good. It was such a nice feeling. But I was also thinking to myself, oh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do that now because that's not the same as a pair of football boots. It's, mm-hmm. it's, I can't buy myself a pair of rollerblades. I'm a, I'm a dad, you know. I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> and then it, it was playing on my mind for a little bit. And then I thought, well, why shouldn't I? Um, so, so I did. So I bought some. And I went it, only about, I think about four months ago or something, I bought them off eBay. And there were ones that I'd wanted when I was younger as well. And I, I thought, I'm just going to do it. And I thought, even if I only go out on them once and just have that feeling again, 
So that's what I did. I bought them and I went out. I went to this skate park. I remember actually I dropped the kids at nursery, drove to this skate park. I remember <laughs> it being in the playground actually with these other parents and they were all sort of going, oh, back to work today, you know, back in the office. <laughs> <laughs> in, in half an hour, I'm going to be on a skate park. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know whether that was brilliant or whether it was tragic, but either way. Well, I think no. Well, I think it was brilliant to go during school time because <laughs> yeah. if you'd gone at the weekend with the park <laughs> full of 12-year-olds, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you go, all right, lads. That would have brought it home a little bit, yeah. But yeah, that was that was quite good, actually. I turned up and it was it, it was completely empty. There were a few like, mm. dog walkers nearby who, who gave me some funny looks, but yeah. And did it come back to you? It did a little bit. It... <laughs> It's sort of, I, I started doing it and it was, the, the first thing then I noticed was it was way more difficult than I remembered because obviously I really, I did the maths and it was 18 years ago that I'd last done it. And your body changes in 18 years, like mm. balances all that. I've probably not actually grown at all in 18 years, but I, I reckon that my balance is completely different and your mind works in a different way so the stuff that used to be natural was, was very difficult I <laughs> fell over a couple of times and I grazed my knee and I realized I'm not grazed my knee for a decade probably but I just I carried on for a little bit and then even though I wasn't anywhere near as good as I used to be I was like this feels this feels good I had the feeling again and, I, and it was so worth it and then I think I pulled my hamstring and then <laughs> it was like three months that I couldn't do anything after that but I went back again like but I was still a little bit embarrassed about it I'd not told my wife that I was going and then she came home and I'd, I'd not mentioned it I'd, I'd admitted it and then I don't know how much you've seen escape yeah and she's saying to her friends I don't know what's going on he just keeps disappearing and uh, <laughs> yeah. he comes back and he's all flushed and you know yeah. he's obviously been doing Coming some sort of and bruises. no I know I mean he's got these marks all down his back it's like he's been scratched <laughs> I think he's having an affair. But I, I, I told her, and I hadn't told her out of embarrassment, but she was like, if you're keeping this from me, what else are you keeping from me? <laughs> <laughs> I, I promise you, it really is. It's just... No, this is the worst thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really, yeah. <laughs> uh, My son was a big skateboarder when he was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. He loved it. And that skateboard crowd, I remember when he first did it thinking, that's just quite dangerous, isn't it? And I'm not sure about these kids. They all look a bit weird. <laughs> uh, they all were They all were a bit weird, but weird in a way that they were just fantastic kids. Yeah. It was a great crowd to be with. They were all incredibly encouraging towards each other. They were very friendly. The older kids would look out for the younger kids. I thought it was a it was a really great thing to do. And I don't know if every now and again, I'll have to ask him. He's the producer of this podcast. Do you still go out every now and yeah, again? Yeah, because, yeah, you sort of think, why not? There's no there's no reason. You're exercising it. Yeah. Well, in a day of, you know, illegal electric scooters yeah. everywhere, and actually going out on wheels, on small wheels and, and getting around, it's a great way to get about, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Cover the distance really quickly. Exactly. Will you have a word with my wife? Because she's been... <laughs> She's still not buying in. I, the other thing I said to her, I was like, just please don't tell your parents because I just didn't want my in-law. <laughs> and she told them. Oh, yeah. That's it. Every time you come in. Hello, skater boy. <laughs> yes, that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just think they already, I think, with my career choice, think, oh, come on, grow up now. Time to be <laughs> a yeah. bit more responsible. So I think that is just but. I don't care. I'm going to carry on. Well, I'll send you that recording. He was a skater boy. He said, see you later, boy. Yeah. Who sang that? Avril Lavigne. Avril Lavigne. Yeah. What a great singer she was. Oh, I was in love with her at that point, yeah. I bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> My wife can't listen to that song about the girl on the bridge. It's a really soulful song that she sang. Oh, yeah. She can't listen to that without crying. Yeah. And I think I think it must be some sort of deep memory of... Uh, of waiting for a boy and him not turning up or something. <laughs> yeah, and you don't, you don't want to pull uh, that thread too much. <laughs> no, I don't, because you sort of go, well, you're sort of still in love with him, aren't you, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Avril Lavigne, yeah, I'll put that in with it. But <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. We put those in. Rollerblades, wonderful. Off you go, right. into the distance. Okay, <laughs> lovely. With your wife standing there just shaking her head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> George, what's number three? Okay, it's ad break time, so I should imagine you'll be very, very excited. But don't worry, things calm down again straight afterwards when we get back to the podcast. I'll see you soon. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back. Phew, wasn't that a roller coaster? At least we can all relax again as we listen to the other things that George Lewis would like to put in his time capsule. And breathe. Uh, so the third thing I'd like to put in, I'd like to put in the feeling from... Am I okay to have a feeling? Absolutely, yeah? yes. yes. It's the feeling after a gig, but it's a particular gig, and it's one... Probably, like, I think maybe three and a half or three, three and a half years in mm. to doing comedy. And it was the first time that I got the feeling that I'd always imagined you'd get as a stand-up comedian. So when I started out, because I'm not the type of person who always wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I didn't mm. really, it wasn't really something that crossed my mind, but I wanted to write and be in a sitcom. That's why I, I saw The Office and I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. <laughs> Um, and I have no idea how you go about doing that, but I just thought that's definitely what I want to do. And then I remember reading an interview with Stephen Merchant and he said, oh, the best way in is just do a bit of stand-up comedy. Then you get to know people and they see you as a performer. And yeah. that's just the way it often works. And I remember I booked in a open spot in London, but I was living in London at the time, for about a month ahead. So it's a five-minute open spot, you know, below a pub it was. Um, mm. I didn't tell anyone about it and I didn't tell my girlfriend, who's now my wife, so another another secret that I get from her. She can't listen to any of this. It's going to ruin your marriage. <laughs> I know, but these, that, they are the only secret. <laughs> but, uh, the thing I'd like to put in and forget you know, are the 17 women I've had affairs with. <laughs> I've never told my wife. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, yeah, so I didn't tell her because I thought to myself, if I'm awful at this and it's embarrassing, then I never need to ever mention it to anyone, but at least in my head I'll know I will give it a try mm. so I did it and I did the gig and it was yeah it went it went fairly well I mean it was fine I think I was better than some of the people that were there so I thought to myself oh well that's good enough to do another one and then yeah. you do another one you think well I'll do five and then I'll do ten and then you think well I'll do a hundred and eventually and you get better and better and each one you enjoy more and more but I'd always half imagined in my head that what would happen is you'd go out you'd stand on the stage you'd tell your first joke you'd have this huge eruption of laughter and you'd think this is where I was meant to be. This is the, <laughs> this is the greatest feeling. And it, it just didn't happen like that at all. It was, I think probably for the first two years, it wasn't the nervousness that I felt beforehand wasn't worth it for the, for the feeling that you got up there because the feeling mm. was nice enough. But also when you start out, you're doing like open spots where a load of other open mic comedians go and you're usually the only ones there. So you, you perform and you've got to stay all night to watch the others mm. and you're only up there for five minutes and it's a bit underwhelming. And I think I just stuck at it just out of stubbornness really, because I, I kept thinking to myself, I'm sure that you get to a point where you have that feeling, that feeling of huge adrenaline and, and that this is, you know, that magical feeling. I'm sure that you must get to that point. So I carried on and carried on. And then eventually, yeah, the gigs get better and better and better. So after performing to print, maybe maximum, like I'd performed to a few hundred people. But then mm. I had a gig in Edinburgh where I was part of, um, it's like the, the gala and it's at the Edinburgh Playhouse. So it's 
Yeah. It's in the thousands then. It's huge, yeah. And I remember that gig so clearly because it walked out and you're only doing five minutes each. But this was a five minutes that I've been working on for a long time. So I, I knew that it all worked and I knew that it was the best it could be. And I just remember that was the, that was the, like the problem. <laughs> it went out and the feeling of telling these jokes that you've told probably a hundred times before, but the wave of noise that comes back to you with the, with the laughter, it was just, it was like, I don't know, it was, it was, it was like being on another planet. And I remember afterwards coming off and I felt, I felt drunk. I felt drunk for hours <laughs> afterwards because it was just the pure adrenaline from it. And I've, I've never actually, I don't think I've had that feeling since. And I've done bigger gigs than that since. And I've done probably nicer gigs that have gone better. But I think because that was so different to everything that had gone before and because before that, I didn't know that that feeling existed. No. So once I experienced it, it was just phenomenal. So I probably won't ever have that again because... I don't know, you just, you just don't feel things in the same way the second time, do you? So that, that No. Was... I think it may be that suddenly you hit this position of having control. I'm completely in control of this situation. Yeah. And in fact, I'm way ahead of everybody. Everybody else is at one speed. And I'm, I've got so many things going on in my mind and yeah. so much, you know, I can, I can experiment, I can do things. And you've got ages to think about it yeah. while they laugh. That's exactly it. You feel like you're existing on a on a different plane to everyone else, and everything you say is is just. And it, obviously, everyone knows how it feels to make people laugh. It it just feels nice when you make people laugh. It feels lovely, and when you make a group of people laugh, it feels brilliant. So when you're stood on your own in front of thousands of people, and it feels like I mean, they probably weren't half of them were probably hating it. But if you do a gig in front of ten people and half of them don't laugh, yeah. it's really obvious. It, you yeah. do it in front of 10,000 people and yeah. half of them don't laugh, you don't notice. No, you've got 5,000 people laughing at you. It's yeah. about the greatest thing in the world, yeah. <laughs> um, so do you go to Edinburgh regularly now? Uh, yeah, I, d- I do. I have to say, I don't particularly enjoy doing the month-long run. Mm. I find it, and I know that, well, I'm, I'm glad to find out that a lot of comedians feel like this because you feel like you're the, you're the only one. Um, yeah, it's almost you're not supposed to not like it. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah. Um, I think I've admitted before to people that that I was never keen on it. It's August. Can't we go on holiday? Yeah. <laughs> we really have to be in Edinburgh. Yeah. Everyone's looking at you and no one's looking at you at the same time. Yeah. And you're suddenly in a league table with everyone that you work with, but it's constantly <laughs> moving and it's out of your control and you... You think a gig's gone well, and then it, and then it, you might get a bad review, and then you like, and then you think a gig's gone terribly, and then you get a good review, and you, and it's so long. It's a whole mm, month. A month, I know. And then you bump into someone whose career's going very well, and you say to them, "Oh, I didn't know you were up here this year." Yeah. And they say, "They say, oh, no, I'm only doing two nights. I'm doing at the uh, <laughs> yeah. the playhouse." Are you? Yeah, exactly. Fuck off. (laughs) (laughs) But that feeling after that gig, yes, you've got it. It's there. Wow. (laughs) You don't even have to do the work. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's that's the ideal for me. Is uh, (laughs) great success without doing any work. That would be (laughs) mine. Excellent. So um, let's move on to the next thing. Okay. So the next one that I want to keep is a trip to. Barcelona in 1999 to the Champions League final um, <sighs> to watch Manchester United against Bayern Munich. To me, I, I mean, I, I I love football, but Manchester United. So growing up, it was it was everything mm-hmm. to me. So I'm from Stockport, which is in Greater Manchester, and my stepdad used to take me to the to the game all the time. Basically, the, the football special train used to run from the stop station, which was right near the house. That used to run straight to Old Trafford. So I think it was something like 11 minutes, and you were at Old Trafford watching teams like Real Madrid play. And I, I, now I look back and I think I feel a bit bad that I was never a, a Stockport County fan because that was I passed that on the way to the, to the station. And, and you know now I, I love lower league football, and I, I think it's brilliant. But as a kid... You'd used to go to Stockport County because you got free tickets with school, and it was it was fine. But you know there weren't loads of people there, and it was just you were with other kids who weren't as interested. Mm. But then went to Old Trafford. You suddenly sat with seventy thousand people. The feeling of that, even now, the feeling. I think that's the thing about sport, which maybe if you're not into sport, you wouldn't realise. Maybe, but the feeling of that kind of mass bonding of all of these people together sat together and watching the same thing and enjoy it's just 
amazing. I just found the feeling amazing. So Manchester United was, was everything to me. And there is that feeling in that crowd that you can make things happen. You can will things to happen. Yes. And 1999, that final, that yeah. is probably the most obvious example of it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a lot of people know will know what happened in that match. It was one of the most memorable finals ever. United were losing most of the match. And then in the dying moments, equalised and then scored the winner. It was like, at the yeah. time, probably the greatest comeback there had ever been. Yeah, absolutely. Having, having equalised, it, it looked as if it would go to extra time and they seemed to have the momentum. Everybody was yeah. thinking, if it goes extra half an hour, we'll probably win. And yeah. then they scored again and did win. Oh, it, it, made, it gave me goosebumps now because ever since that, I, for years afterwards, I would just watch that over and over again, that final, just reliving it. But back to before the final, when it was that season and everything was going brilliantly. And I was going to a lot of games, but not, not the away games, but a lot of the home games. And it was, it just felt, the whole season felt magic. And I was young then, but we, we'd go out to the pub to watch the away games and the Champions League games. And I'd always go with my mm. dad. And I think the moment that we must have won the second semi-final to go to the final, we went home and my stepdad would always ask my mum if we could do things, like if we could, you know, <laughs> she was always in charge of everything and she was in charge of the family budget. And he asked her if instead of, because I'd never been abroad at this time, we'd never been abroad as a family. And I think he asked her if we could not have the family holiday to Cornwall and instead me and him go to Barcelona for this wow. weekend. And I remember it and she, she said yes. And we'd got this package deal, which was in the Manchester Evening News. And basically it got you um, the flights and your hotel and a match ticket. So we got all this and everything. I mean, it's such a distant memory. Everything's a bit of a blur, but I just remember being so excited about this, but also so nervous because I was going to go on a plane and and stuff. And it was all so new to me and all so big. But we did this. We got on the plane and I remember we arrived and we bought a a mobile phone and it was quite an early mobile phone, but I remember... We'd bought one before this trip so we could stay in contact with my mum. And we touched down and she phoned us up and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry about what's happened. And I was like, what? And she went, it's all over the news, all over the local news. The company that had sold this thing had declared bankruptcy before the final. So everyone's match tickets and hotels didn't exist. So everyone on this plane had travelled out and we didn't have anything when we got there. Oh, no. It was just bizarre um and i remember i don't know how it all worked out but basically we then stayed in a monastery for some reason we stayed in a monastery in barcelona it was full of monks and we stayed there and we we didn't have a match ticket but it was just everything about the the trip in my memory so did you go to a bar and watch it yeah so we we, we went along to the new camp during the day and we kept saying mm. oh we we might get a ticket off a tout and yeah, then they were just yeah. so expensive and we just couldn't do it and it got to before kickoff, and we thought, right, we're going to have to just watch it in a bar, but we'll, we thought we'd head into the centre of Barcelona to the Ramblers, we'll watch it there, and it'll still be brilliant. We got on the metro, and my stepdad isn't great with directions. We rode this thing for probably half an hour, and I'm thinking, it's just getting quieter and quieter, <laughs> and we'd got on the wrong direction. So we'd headed out of Barcelona on it, and we were like, we've got to get off because we're going to miss the match. Um <laughs> So we, so we just got off and we were just in this neighbourhood in the middle of nowhere. And it was like, I mean, maybe I've dramatised it in my head, but I remember coming out and there just been like like a siren and a dog barking. And, like, and a gunshot. It was yeah. like that. And I remember before that, I don't even know if this is real, but I remember before the trip, everyone warned you about there are all these child gangs in Barcelona and they'll, they'll rob you. And, and I don't even know if that's real, but I remember at the time thinking, oh God, that's going to be a child gang. They're going to rob <laughs> It was so scary, but it, it was such an adventure. And we went out and we found this tiny little bar and the match had just kicked off. And we just went in, just me and my stepdad and the locals in this bar. And we just watched it in there. And obviously the match was what it was. And it was mm. amazing. It was just incredible. And it was such a nice memory. And it was just me and him and the local and we sort of the locals were enjoying watching us watch the match. And then afterwards we went into the centre and we celebrated. And it's just mm. in my head. It feels like it's a drunken memory, but I wasn't drinking at the time because I was I was twelve. So yeah, I just it's, it's just such a special memory. But it, it, I think because it felt like the moment that the thing that I'd been obsessed with, it was like the greatest moment to do with that. 
But also, it was like I'd seen a whole new world. It was the biggest adventure I'd ever been on. Fantastic. My son was 16 at the time. And I remember when they qualified for the final. And I'm going to tell you, I'm a Man United fan. Yeah. Lifelong. So for me, when you say one of the great, it is the greatest sporting moment in history. And I won't brook any argument. Yeah. I had said to my son when we got to the final, I said, we should go to Barcelona. I've always regretted not going. I really should have gone. But instead, after the game, I said to him, should we go to Manchester? And we did. Yeah. We drove to Manchester and we were at the airport to watch the plane come back. Oh, fantastic, and yeah. watch them all come off with the cup. Yeah. And then we got on the train and went into Manchester and watched the parade. Oh, well, that was the other thing, the parade as well. It was it was yeah. like nothing I'd ever seen before as well. It's just the whole streets were just, people were on lampposts and hanging Amazing. out of windows. And it was, yeah, yeah. With Roy Keane sitting at the back of the bus looking miserable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know, yeah. You think, well, you, you're never going to be happy, are you? No. <laughs> oh, in fact, on Roy Keane, I was thinking about him the other day. Well, it wasn't the other day. It must have been about two months ago because I remember I was writing, because I write this like I write this football article every week um, for The Times, and I was writing about Roy Keane because he was being particularly angry that week or something. And as I was sort of sat there, I was in a coffee shop near, sort of near where I'm, I live, and I, I was writing and I looked up and I thought, what the hell? Roy Keane was at the window of the coffee shop, looking in with a big smile on his face. <laughs> and I thought, what on earth is... And I thought for a minute, am I, am I hallucinating or... Um, or does he know that he's going to beat me up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but he wasn't, he wasn't smiling at, at me. It was just, I'd caught him at the moment, you know, when you because I think he was with his daughter. And you know when you're just walking down the road and you're having a bit of a chat and a laugh and you just glanced in the coffee shop window and it just so happened that I was behind the glass. And I thought, this is, this is... And then I, I looked up afterwards where he lived and it made sense that he would he would be there walking past there. But I was just frozen. And then afterwards I thought, oh, why didn't I chase after him? And, and just tell him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And just tell him. I know. <laughs> it is weird, isn't it? Yeah. Those opportunities, how you, you freeze because yeah. you think, so, oh, I don't want to embarrass them or I don't... But in fact... As performers, we would know that when people say, I really love that, or I thought you were really great in that, you go, oh, thank you very much. Yeah. Quite extraordinary. (laughs) But that's it. When you fall in love with these things, you can't help it, you know. Yeah. You're stuck with it. So what a lovely thing to do, though. What a great thing to share with your stepfather. Yeah, yeah. And it's, yeah, it was just, and it it just felt like, you just felt like, wow, it it felt like a miracle at the time. Yeah. I can't watch that moment without crying. Mm, Yeah, that's the same. And you feel... Again, that's another one of those things which you, you tell some people and, you, and it feels silly and it feels trivial, but it's just it's just everything around it as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, wow. Brilliant. Let's move on to the final thing then, the thing you want to put in and bury and forget. Yes. So I'd thought about this quite a bit, but I, th- I think the thing that I'd want to get rid of is something about me. It's, it's my thin skin. So I feel like... A lot of the best things that that I do and a lot of the things that I enjoy most and I'm most proud of sometimes get ruined because I'll take one criticism and never forget about it. <laughs> I wouldn't like to be completely thick skinned because I, I feel like it I feel like it helps you to be a bit sensitive to stuff like that and you you improve and you don't want it again. But there are some things that you do, and especially it'll be the same for you. You do things and they're out in the world and everyone's got an opinion on them. And I just wish that I felt the nice ones as much as I feel the bad ones. Because you feel a load of nice, what you, you read a load of nice reviews of something or, or feedback about something, and you think, oh, that, that does feel lovely. But then one bad one, and mm. it makes you feel awful. So you always notice the person in an audience that's not laughing. Absolutely, yes, yes. So it, one in a hundred people is not laughing. You'll spend all night thinking, well... Why did they hate me so much? You know, what, what had I done? <laughs> yeah. And I felt that for ages with, with stand-up. And then I stopped because I think I'd done it so much that I was comfortable enough to know that, oh, well, enough people have liked it that that it's okay. And I think that's the thing with other things that I do. I remember when I started writing my article a few years ago, I remember each week I would log on to see the comments below. And there could be 10 really nice comments, but if there was one that was 
like, oh, is this meant to be funny or something like that? I'd be like, <laughs> I'd just come downstairs and my wife would be like, well, are you all right? Like, what's the matter with you? And I'm like, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm fine. But, you know, all I could think about was that some person I'd never met had read something that I'd done and had not thought it was funny. <laughs> and I, it would just crush me. It would crush me. And it's the same with my book. I like, I remember when it first came out, I said to myself, I won't read any reviews. But then I started reading the reviews and then I mm. check the reviews every day and they've, they've all been pretty nice. But the, I, I just know that there's going to be one someday. I'm going to go on there and there'll be an awful one and it will crush me. <laughs> and I know it will. Yes. Oh, not another one of these books. <laughs> yes. And I think the way that I have found to deal with that particular thing, even though it's not really happened yet, but the way I've prepared myself for it, and I did this before my book even got published, was mm. I looked up some of the reviews of some of the books that I absolutely adore. And there are, right. there, there are some books that I adore and there are some writers who I just think are, they're just perfect. Like the way they write is so funny and it's so, like if you think like Frankie Boyle, Charlie Brooker, Dan mm. Wallace and David Mitchell maybe especially. And I, and I just think sometimes I'll listen to David Mitchell and I think, God, I could never reach that because it's all so clever, so funny. And, and then I'll find a review that might say, not your best work, David. Or and I'll think, well, Mitchell's whinging again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then I think to myself, well, if if they think that about that, then it's fine. Yeah, quite. <laughs> it's fine. And equally, I'll Absolutely. find reviews for things that I think are terrible and brilliant reviews, and I'll think, well, I don't want those people. You know, like, yeah, they don't know what they're talking about. Yeah. These people. But I think often that is the case. And of course, the whole thing about a review is that it is, it is one person's opinion. Mm. It's often put out as if it's a reflection of society's view. Yeah, I know. It's awful. And it's it's always been the way. It's just now it's just so easy to tell people what you think. And it's so... I mean, Twitter's one that is awful for that. I mean, every comedian yeah. I know gets... A lot of them get daily horrible things said to them. I see it happen every now and again because yeah. we've had a lot of, I think, lovely guests on, on this podcast. Yeah. And every now and again somebody will take an inexplicable disliking of someone and therefore just that person being on the podcast they will then write something underneath oh this person and it'll just be horrible horrible yeah and you go why waste your time with that why spend time writing horrible things about people is it going to change them no is it going to have an effect no apart from maybe upsetting people yeah i remember doing something the first biggest thing that i've done on TV, it felt like that was the first time I was at the mercy of people on on Twitter, and I think a lot mm. of people on Twitter think, "Well, the person's never going to read this because, why? Well, you know, they won't read this stuff." But of course, you do because your your phone in your pocket buzzes to say someone has tagged you in a post. Yeah, <laughs> there was one which someone just seemed to be annoyed by the way that I looked and sounded. They were like, "Who is this guy? Get him off my screen! He looks like Beavers from Beavers and Butthead." <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, I was like, and now I think that's a hilarious thing to, to say about it. But at the time, I was thinking, why would you, why would you do that to me? Why didn't you just turn it off? Well, yeah, exactly. It's mad. I often look in the mirror in the mornings, and if I'm having it feeling a bit crap that day, I'll think you look a bit beavisy today. <laughs> and I think, I'll never forget that the rest of my life. No, then I'll let you develop a much thicker skin. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we'll put the thin skin into the time capsule. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, Mike. Okay, that's it. George, it's been lovely to talk to you. It's always nice to talk to a fellow Manchester United fan. Yes. And if we've driven all the Man City fans away from this podcast, good riddance to you. Fuck them. <laughs> it's a horrible colour, that light blue anyway, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Oh, thanks for having me, Michael. I'm going to go and do the nursery run now. <laughs> You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my wonderful guest, George Lewis. What a lovely chap George is, isn't he? I hope you enjoyed listening to our chat. If you did, then you can subscribe to this podcast very easily, and then you'll receive all new episodes as they come out through your podcast provider. It's up to you whether you listen to them, of course, but at least you'll have the choice. And if you could also rate the show, we'd be very grateful. And for the really adventurous among you, some podcast players allow you to review or even leave comments. Nice ones, please. As my gran used to say, if you can't say something nice, Michael, then fuck off. 
Yeah, she was a foul-mouthed old crone. Please feel free to follow us, that's me or my time capsule, on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. We'll be happy to chat on there. The producer of this podcast, as you may know, is John Fenton Stevens, who also wrote the theme tune under the guise of Pass the Peas music. Not sure I've admitted that before. Anyway, he's a talented chap. It's available in a virginal state, that is, without my voice spoiling it, on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast. Thanks for listening. Right, I'll return to my world of reminiscences soon. Of course, my football world is always that, being a Man United fan. Hmm. Uh, the year of 1999 and the treble. Gigs, Skulls, Beckham, and of course the great Sir Alex. Also the time of my favourite football joke, which is probably why I mentioned it. David Beckham is doing a bit of extra training and Sir Alex comes up and offers him a cup of coffee from his thermos flask. What's that, Sir Alex? says David. Oh, yes, a thermos flask, lad. I've got a terrible Scottish accent. I'll do it normally. It's a thermos flask, lad, he says. Oh, really? What's that for? He says, well, it keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. Oh, that's clever, says David. So the next day at training, he's there, and Giggsy says to him, what you got there, David? He says, it's a thermos flask. He says, oh, what's that for? He said, well, it keeps hot things hot and cold things cold. Giggsy says, what you got in it? And Beckham says, uh, I've got a cup of coffee and a chalk ice. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.